0: Hi, this is Paul Siegel. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com wanderingdms live. And now, on with the show.
1: welcome to wandering dms i'm paul and i'm dan and on today's show we'll be talking to keith amon who is of course the author of the monsters know what they're doing combat tactics for dungeon masters and the soon to be released sequel more monsters know what they're doing keith thank you so much for uh, making time to join us today
2: thank you for inviting me
1: Uh, I'll remind that viewers that we do have a super chat running on YouTube. So if there is a question you really want to get us to Keith and we missed it, uh, that's an option. And we'll make sure to get that in the show if you do that. Um, And, uh, uh, well, you know, one thing, Keith, I noticed this morning is that uh, you won two any awards in 2020 with the Monsters Know What They're Doing, both for one for your online blog and then another one for uh, a silver award for best writing for the book. So congratulations on that.
2: Thank you, thank you. I got the I got the gold for the website because I didn't have to compete against Merckboard They just ran the table. <laughs> every category they competed in. There was there was no hope. There was no hope for anyone else that year. But yeah, winning silver was was still pretty satisfying.
1: Super good, also, super good. Really? You know, we had in in twenty twenty, uh, Paul and I had uh, a fifth edition uh, tournament show that we called the Big Bad and. Um, you know, I, I'm not the biggest fifth edition expert, even though I was running the monsters. And in retrospect, I really wish that I'd had your book. <laughs> <laughs> because there were certain stumbles that I made. And afterwards, I was like, somebody must have analyzed this earlier. And I should have, I should have had Keith's book in front of me. Um, so next time, that's my plan, frankly, to be perfectly <laughs> honest.
2: What was the monster?
1: <laughs> well, I had a high-level cleric. I had a high level evil high priest, so I had to handle a, a very intelligent uh, specialist caster. I also had an entire team of acolytes who were all casting uh, spells. And then we also had purple worms and stone elements in the picture. But but gauging the spells was really the yeah. big issue that I had a couple hiccups on. Uh, I, I
2: think so you did yeah,
0: reasonably well there, Dan. Uh, <laughs>
2: Yeah, I covered but, it.
1: Uh, I covered yeah, it, but next yeah. time I plan to be much, much better. Uh, uh, look, when, when I look at Keith's books, of course. So, um, so Keith, let's talk about uh, your your new book that is already available for pre-order. If you uh, go to Keith's website at uh, monstersknow.com, uh, see a bunch of links to the pre-orders. So I think among the things you're adding in the new book are <laughs> just sections. Just on, like, the, the pre-order
2: yeah. links are at spyandowl.com. Uh, There are pre-order links on themonstersknow.com, too, but yeah. Uh, But they're all collected right now on on spyandowl.com.
1: Awesome. And so right now on screen, we see uh, uh, on the far, on the left, uh, Keith's original book, The Monsters Know What They're Doing. On the far right, there's the players-oriented book, and those are all out now, called Live to Tell the Tale. And right in the middle is the cover to his new book that's going to come out in a month or two called uh, More Monsters Know What They're Doing. So I think among the things you're putting in the new book are some sections on, like, particular novel environments or situations. What are, what are maybe you can tell us about some of those that you're including in the new book.
2: Well, it, I, um, so the book overall collects the uh, monsters from Volo's Guide to Monsters and Lord Kynet's Tome of Foes. And I have a few more digressions in this one. On, on various topics. Uh, I do, at the beginning of the book, go into more depth about how to analyze monsters that are not covered in the books. Uh, and I use as a case study a monster of my own creation that I actually created for the book called The Bin Ask. But uh, yeah, so there are uh, sidebar sections on handling counter spell, on running very intelligent en- enemies, on running monsters of different types fighting together, and um, you you talked about environments. What I'm specifically talking about is darkness, and specifically, specifically the darkness <laughs> spell. Um, how do you deal with that? And and that comes out of an insight that I had when I was analyzing the Dregloth for the blog and and trying to um, figure out strategies for fighting in magical darkness. Because one of the oddities of mm-hmm. um, Dregloth and, and drow, like, you know, lots of drow-adjacent creatures, is they can cast darkness, but they can't see through it. They don't have double sight or anything equivalent <laughs> to that that lets them see through the magical darkness. Yep. Uh, yep. Even their their superior dark vision doesn't do that. Um, so what's the deal? Why why would you want to cast this spell? So often it seems like a trap choice, and honestly, a way to sandbag your teammates. You know, to to mess up their day. And I started looking at how the condition rules interact with each other. And I, I just, I had my epiphany, my Eureka moment, which is that darkness is the equalizer because everyone in it is effectively blinded, which means they have disadvantage on attacks and attacks against them have advantage and also invisible which means their attacks have advantage and attacks against them have disadvantage. So simultaneously everyone who is involved in combat in this field of darkness <laughs> has both advantage and disadvantage on all their attacks. And there's advantage and disadvantage on all attacks against them, which if you read the advantage and disadvantage rules, you can't have both. When you have both, you have neither. And because there is for everyone in this arena a source of advantage and a source of disadvantage, what it means is that every source of advantage or disadvantage on attack rolls is squelched. It's right. so. It's the equalizer. It's the great leveler. Um, hmm. And what it the effect? The ultimate. And it even affects uh, people who are outside the field of darkness. But shooting in with ranged weapons, it's the same for them. Because on the one hand, their targets can't see them to avoid the shot, but on the other hand, they can't see the targets and have to make educated guesses based on what they can hear or whatever. If I I remember my
0: my rules here, right, Keith, um, disadvantage and advantage don't stack either, right? So so you're not equalizing. You have
2: one of each. Yeah, Yeah, it's not diplomacy, it's not like support versus (laughs) support. Which I, you know, that, that was something I needed to clarify very early on for myself. Uh, no, as soon as you have one advantage and one disadvantage, all advantage and disadvantage is canceled out. And so you have this, uh, you, have this you, ha- you now have this area of effect in which advantage and disadvantage simply no longer apply to attack rolls. You cannot gain either. Um, hmm. and it becomes a situation that favors whoever has the most raw power. Whoever gets the the greatest number of attacks, has the best to hit modifier, deals the best damage. Uh, which in many cases is the dragloth. So that's that's where you know it comes back around. Uh the Draoth is favored in a situation like this because it is tough. It is a tough route. Hmm. Uh but uh, as far as player characters go, it is actually not as bad a situation as you think for the player's character side, except for rogues. It's oh. Rogues still get to complain because they need that they need advantage in order to get sneak attack damage or or they need to be attacking. Someone um, who also has one of their allies um, active and adjacent to the enemy, um, so they can still do a backstab, but they can't do a snipe, basically. Um, or they can do it, but they could do it, but they're not going to get their sneak attack damage off. Of it.
0: Um, right, which is the whole point of being and, a rogue right? Uh, to get that get that sneak attack damage.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, without without it, what are you? it's a huge. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so so if you are playing a rogue in a darkness situation, you have to get in there, listen closely, figure out where everyone is, and and backstab because you're not going to get your sneak attack damage any other way. But the other mm-hmm. thing, uh, the other thing about darkness is when one side says we're overmatched, it favors fleeing because you can't take an attack of opportunity against an enemy you can't see. And Mm -hmm. so uh, in in darkness, in fog cloud, any uh, any situation in which um, the area is heavily obscured, if you have heavily obscured visibility, um, it's easy to run away because you don't have to disengage in order to avoid the opportunity attacks. So those are the two big, big effects that... Heavy obscurity has darkness fog cloud. now of yeah. course if you do have someone in magical darkness with devil sight, they're gonna rule they're, they're just gonna they're, they are the boss in that situation.
1: Interesting. You know, and, and the, it, the, you started uh, noting that it's, uh, it seems problematic for things like Drow to have both Dark Sight and being able to cast Darkness. And that's been a problem that's bugged me since first edition. I mean, that exact same problem jumped out at me when the Drow first appeared in the first edition Against the Giants series. And, I mean, some some viewers might know that has bothered me so much that I actually (laughs) house-ruled. I don't house-rule too many spells, but I specifically (laughs) house-ruled the Darkness spell to work differently because of that. Um, uh, When we were running our tournament game, we wanted to honor the 5th edition rules as written. Uh, I don't think Darkness came up, but we continually were scrambling to find the right ruling for stuff like Fog Cloud or Sleet Storm or even Insect Plague that has either light or heavy obscurement. And I think every, every episode where that popped up, Paul and I had to touch base afterwards and, and re-research what the proper ruling for that stuff is. Do you, right. do you find that complicated in practice, Keith? Do you feel that you've bobbled that at all? Because it seems like a number of rules that you're having to um, sync up together to find what the effect is.
2: One of the advantages of writing the blog is having to think about it in advance prepares me for when the issue comes up in a game session. So I'm usually pretty well equipped to handle these things in game because I'm not caught by surprise having to think through it for the first time. Either I've already figured it out or I know where in the books I need to go look it up. Um, which, by the way, just for everyone out there who, who feels insecure about their level of rules expertise, this is, this is a little professional wisdom that I have from having worked for many, many years as a copy editor. You don't have to know all the rules. What you need is that little alarm in your head that goes off to tell you when to look something up and the knowledge of where to look it up. That's all you need. As long as you know where to find the answer quickly, you don't have to have that answer in your head all the time.
1: I think that's good advice. I think that's good advice. And I think that it's similar, like, just knowing the name, just knowing the name of an ability or rule or where if you need to look it up in the index or something like that gives you vastly more power yeah. than if you're just totally guessing. Yeah.
2: Or just knowing things chapter by chapter, knowing that in yeah. the, the player's handbook, section 5 is gear, section 7 is the process of it. Uh, I'm sorry, 7 is uh, using ability scores, 8 is adventuring nine is combat tennis spellcasting uh or in the dungeon master's guide chapter three is where you find the encounter building guidelines chapter eight is uh all of the miscellaneous tables in fact i actually i just remember page 249 Almost all of the tables that I need to look up in the Dungeon Master's Guide, <laughs> or have needed over the years to look up in the Dungeon Master's Guide, are within two or three pages of page 249. So I just open <laughs> to 249 and then flip backward. And <laughs> great, that's funny. That's great. That's I, great. I,
0: I think it's fascinating how much uh, we kind of create these just through through this muscle memory or these visual landmarks uh, mm-hmm. with, the, with the text, which I think is really fascinating. I think it's one of the most important parts of like good interior art in rule books, right? Because those called beca- also I think Yeah, it helps you navigate. Landmarks. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. For me, you know, with the first edition DMG, I can usually stick my thumbnail, as you're saying, about three pages away from wherever whatever rule I need to look up at a particular moment. So, which is we and, and you know, which I like having a physical book for. I like having the physicality, frankly, of like, you yeah. know, how yeah. deep is it on the Z axis into the book. <laughs>
2: Although I will, I will also say, you know what, you know what the number one thing I like best about D&D Beyond is that I can go to the URL bar in my browser and start typing the name of a monster, get the URL and go straight to it because I've done it so many times. Yeah. Or if I know, if I know that I have not looked one up and I'm looking it up for the first time, I just start typing monster or spells or magic hyphen item. And it's going to take me to the search menu. And then I can find what I need from there. Those those little shortcuts, they built that really well. I have to give them big kudos for that, because that's not something everyone would have thought of. Certainly, certainly, I think as,
0: um, you know, as as the breadth of books increases, the ability to have a digitized version with with hyperlinking and search uh, is very Mm -hmm. valuable, I think. Um, and I certainly, uh, I did that when I was running fifth at the table. Right, I would have a an iPad or a or a or a laptop flipped open to just a, a tab of the the search bar on D and D Beyond, so I could quickly pull whatever it was I needed up up. Nice, yeah, That's super nice, yeah. Um, I, want, know, I want okay, to ask Dan. If I,
2: wait,
0: yeah. wait, I want to go back to darkness here, because uh, my <laughs> recollection, Dan, is one one of the big one of the big issues that you and I faced consistently. And I'm curious if Keith has a a, a take on this. Was the question of if uh, if a, an enemy is in an area of heavy obscurement. Uh, right. and I am outside, uh, and I have a, a spell or I have a ranged weapon, can I target mm-hmm. that person in the heavy obscurity? I, I wanted to ask that loud? exact
1: same question, except in the other direction. So among the yeah. things that happened on the big bad at one point is, and again, I have a high-level priest. I have a couple acolytes. They're trying to get a ritual accomplished, not a, a, a technical by-the-book ritual, but a thing that's going to take a little bit of time. And the, the players hit me with, uh, with a sleet storm. Which causes obscurement. Can I can can they now cast spells in? Can I cast spells out? Am I am I better off in that situation or am I worse off at
2: that point? So obscurity does not okay, number one, obscurity in and of itself does not create cover. Uh, beyond that, the the number one thing as far as spell casting is concerned is does the wording of the spell say a target a targeting a creature you can see? If it says a creature you can see, then your host, um, you cannot cast that spell at a target you can't see, and if, if it's heavily obscured, you can't see them. If it's a point within range, that's fair game, and um, or a creature within range. If it says within range but not that you can see, you can target them. As far as uh, attacking with, for example, a ranged weapon or a thrown weapon uh, is concerned. That is... You can always do that. It's a disadvantage because you can't see them. Um, Although if their vision is heavily obscured, it's an advantage because they can't see you to dodge it, so cancel. But then the other issue is, are you attacking into the right space? And that's where you have to consider that you can not only see enemies, potentially, but hear them as well. You hear their footsteps. You hear their uh, their armor clanking or their scales doing whatever scales do. Uh, so and eating, uh, perhaps. Yeah. And you, and, you, and you aim your attack at the sound. Yeah, Yeah. going you aim your attack at the sound (laughs) and um, but you can hide, you can take the hide action anytime you can't be seen and if you successfully hide you are now unseen and unheard and you can move around as long as people can't see you You can move around freely and people can lose track of your position. So if you are hidden, then I would say your enemy has to either infer or guess what space you are in and attack the space rather than you. And if they guessed right, they get you. If they get, well, they have the chance to get you, you know, if they roll a hit. Uh, If they guess wrong, they just, you know, they shot magic missile at the darkness.
0: Well, how do you how do you reconcile that though? With uh, we are sitting around a table with miniatures on a board, and everyone can plainly see where you are, like
2: as players. Well, if you're if you're <laughs> hidden, I'm taking that miniature. Yeah, off.
0: yeah. You want to take the miniature off? Start uh, start doing secret uh, mm-hmm. notation. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yep. Or just or just uh, you know mentally track it. And the, for the, the players, other, the other... what I would usually do is just like take off the miniature and replace it with a poker chip or something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. That's sort of that's sort of
2: marking the last known location. Or, um, or... well, actually, uh, you could leave the mini. You could do it a couple of ways. You mm-hmm. could you could mark yeah. the last known location with the chip and then move the figure, or you could um, just remove the figure entirely. But then you know, move the chip to represent where you are, but also simultaneously the fact that you're invisible. And then when you reappear, replace the figure. I mean, that's, that's you know, however a table wants to do it. There's no right or right. wrong way.
1: Right. It's right. whatever
2: you've got. I make huge use of miniature poker chips when I play at a real table. That's, that's my all-purpose uh, miniature substitute. It's what I use... For creatures that uh, I don't consider important enough to buy and paint a miniature for, um, mm-hmm. I have them in a whole bunch of different colors so I can keep track of creature types, factions, what have you. I assume this
0: is actually probably a solved problem on, on uh, digital. Like like if we're playing Roll Twenty, I assume I can probably do something clever, like make my miniature only visible to me in the DM. Just move it.
2: Just move <laughs> it to you. Move the token from the token layer to the DM layer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. Never really thought of that as a possible uh, benefit of digital play. Interesting. All right. Let me go back, though, because I have another question, which is, so you're specifically calling out hearing. What about other senses? Like what about smell or tremor sense? Uh, How do do those play in? Um, You know, do do those just cut through? Do those just just uh, obviate? uh, uh, Well, obscurity
2: doesn't affect them. Obscurity only affects sight. Uh, it doesn't yeah. affect hearing. It doesn't affect anything else. Now, there are some things that do affect hearing. Um, the deafened condition is one. But there are other things, and I can't think of any off the top of my head, but there are I know there are ones. Oh, oh, um, high wind in, in the DMG. When you look under adventuring oh. uh, 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 environments, wilderness, there is um, high wind imposes disadvantage on Hearing checks. And um, so then, you know, if let's say it's pitch dark and you're trying to find someone who is hidden, unseen and unheard, you can say, I look for them, um, which you're not going to find them, not in darkness. Or you can say, I listen for them. And then you're going to make a perception check based on hearing. Suppose it's only lightly obscured, then you can say, I listen for them, make your perception check based on hearing, or I look for them. You can make a perception check based on sight, but because the area is lightly obscured, you're gonna be making that check at disadvantage. And um, so uh, then you have things like tremor sense, Uh, tremor sense just cuts through all of that. It's vibrations through the ground. Nothing's gonna suppress that. Or blind sight, nothing's gonna fool blind sight. Uh, uh, keen smell. Uh, I my my personal interpretation uh, of smell is that you can only use smell to pinpoint a creature's location if you have the keen smell trait or one of the combo traits like keen hearing and smell. Uh, You can perceive them through smell uh, if they smell bad enough or strongly enough. Uh, You can perceive through smell, you but you cannot pinpoint location through smell unless you have a keen smell trait. Uh, But that's—I don't even—I don't even know if that rises to the level of what I would call a house rule because I don't think it's ever come up at my table. It's just that's the decision I've made in my head for if it ever does come up
1: i see in a couple of places on your blog you've mentioned more than once how powerful the keen smell ability is because there's no uh, range limit to it and as you pointed out in the real world creatures like elephants or bears can can smell other creatures yeah. from miles away potentially so that's really powerful mm-hmm. yeah nice all right, let's pivot a little bit. That's Thank you so much. I think that's going to be very, very useful. I know what the segues to. Know to. The issues, I know what the segues to. Right? <laughs> well, the book's about monsters, right? Admittedly, the book's about <laughs> monsters. So we should probably talk about a couple of monsters. And I picked out like two or maybe three. And I thought for my purposes, it would be interesting. I hope you guys forgive me to look at a monster that was both in an early edition, as well as fifth edition, as well as something that was maybe a little bit challenging for Keith. To analyze and so the first one that popped out at me was the, the lucrata monster and the lucrata appeared initially in the first edition a D monster manual and all three of us i believe are are delighted by the dave trampier illustration there from first edition that we're looking at right now um, and it's and of course that is a large sized lion horse stag badger hyena combination <laughs> <laughs>
2: that, the description, the also, description in Volos is absolutely hilarious. I have a lucrata is what you would get if you took the head of a giant badger, the brain of a person who likes to torture and eat people, the legs of a deer, and the body of a large hyena. Put them together and reanimated them with demon ichor without bothering to cover up the stink of death. <laughs> I I am like seventy to eighty percent certain that Chris Perkins wrote that. It's uh, got to have been him. Maybe there might have been maybe somebody else wrote that, but my money is on Chris Perkins wrote that. That's oh if man. anyone knows to the contrary, oh, I would love to know.
1: That's great. That's great. Maybe I, one of I, our viewers I mean, know, know who wrote that in Bolo's.
0: Very, very <laughs> evocative of the uh, powerful necromancer leaning over his cauldron and being like, Should I put some perfume in? Eh, screw it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Let's make it
0: smell worse.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now we're saying, and, and we're, we're saying that this originally appeared in first edition, but I, I must say, if we go all the way back, you know, this is a creature from actual Indian mythology. Eh? Indian mythology, and Pliny the Elder, first told us about it in the 1st century AD. So this monster goes way, way back. <laughs> is, that, is, that this, is that this image, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, is an, that is an illustration from a 15th century medieval bestiary for the Lucrata,
2: actually. I was going to say and Dave Tramp here, was... age 11.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, one interesting thing in the illustration that doesn't come through in D&D monsters is d monsters suppo- is that its mouth is supposed to go all the way back into its ears. Historically, yeah. and so it can unhinge its whole mouth and like swallow up a whole man because the mouth comes comes open. But let's talk about D and D. So among the things that the Lucrata has in all editions of D and D is and mythology is that it can make it sound uh, make itself sound like a human being. So it tends to like give a cry and go, "Oh, I'm a terror! I'm a I'm a princess, and somebody needs to needs to rescue me or something like that."
2: And that's just ooh, a whimpering child or something.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So one thing that you point out on your on your blog uh, Keith is that this is clearly an ambushing type monster but it doesn't have stealth. How right. how did, how did you the, make the, use the, of yeah. that?
2: So the the ambush predator skill combination. I, I use I use this as a as a proxy as a token for indicating that something is an ambush predator. Anytime I see perception and stealth together in the skill proficiencies but as you pointed out the lucrata does not have stealth um so it uh it's trying to fool you into thinking that it is something other than what it was what it is but it cannot make itself unseen and So the solution that I came up with based on the mimicry trait and the fact that it has keen smell is that it takes advantage of fog. Um, Taking advantage of its dark vision is not enough because its dark vision range is not longer than the range of most other creatures with dark vision. It's the standard 60 feet. So it's not like the drow, where it can see you coming from an additional 60 feet away. Um, it, its dark vision range is the same as yours. So it has to be able to sense you when you cannot sense it, except in the guise that it's putting on through its mimicry. And, uh, yeah, so... so My conclusion is that a foggy night is a Lucrata night. They take advantage of fog and maybe also uh, environmental obstacles to vision, like they'll hide in ruins or uh, forests or something like that, um, where they can they have things that they can hide behind uh, for when somebody gets close up to it. And uh, then when the victim approaches closely enough, Because it has the keen smell, it can tell where you are uh, based on smell alone. And it has that uh, 50 foot movement. So it's fast. As soon as you come within the range of the movement, it strikes.
1: Now, uh, our, um, our, our viewer Joshua is actually asking a pretty good question here. Um, and that's. good. I think this is good. I don't know if you can put that on up on screen, Paul. Yeah, um,
0: so uh, Joshua here asks: Doesn't that imply it can't hunt humans easily? It only ever. It's only ever other think, races that have dark vision.
1: I think he's saying but, it can hunt humans. I think he's saying humans would okay. be the preferred oh, yeah, totally. prey. Yeah,
2: yeah. But the but, but the point is, it's hunting in a in a circumstance that gives them advantage over all creatures, including ones with dark vision. Whereas, um, an ambush predator that couldn't do this might have to limit itself to hunting humans and halflings and other creatures that don't have dark vision and would have to leave, let's say wood elves alone. It would know better than to go after them because Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, they would run away or they would, they would find it, hunt it. Um, other creatures, yes, they would. Other ambush predators would have potentially that disadvantage, but lucratas don't. They can be broader. They can they can attack more different types of humanoids. Nice,
1: nice. Now remind me, what is the now exact the one thing about the lucratas that I could not
2: figure out to fit in was kicking retreat, because here you have a brute attacker. It wants to stay engaged in melee. If if it's attacking in pea soup fog. It never actually needs to disengage because you can't opportunity attack a creature you can't see. Um, so the, the the solution I came up with is kicking retreat is what it uses when the fog is dispersed and the jig is up.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Nice. nice. Interesting. Nice. And that's I an mean, ability that's been there since first before. edition. So.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's right there in the in the, in the first edition description. Um, I feel like it's very evocative for setting up an encounter, right? Like, the, just the, the description and the analysis of the abilities alone. Like, I'm immediately imagining a, you know, a, a maybe a, a wood elf outpost where the players go in and the fog sets in and they pull in all their scouts and they say, don't go out tonight. The Lucrata are out, right? Yeah, <laughs> But of nice. course, then it supplies some reason for them to go out. Nope, nope, we need to. Got to go out there. All right, good luck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what exactly is the rule text on the fog? Or my, is that is that heavy obscurement or is that something else, Keith?
2: Uh, fog can be light or heavy depending on how thick it is. Okay. Okay. And if you cast fog cloud, that is heavy.
1: Okay. And either one will help the Lacroix out, or do they specifically need heavy
2: obscurement? No, you want the heavy. You really want the heavy. Okay. Okay.
1: Fascinating. Okay. Great. All right. Okay. That's good to know. So now I know how to use LaCroix in my game. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> Let's talk about, so I, so among the, so for the other two things, I hope, I hope it's okay if we talk about, I think I want to talk about the cave fisher because I challenged okay. Paul with one minute to go before the show. There's no way he would have a hard copy of the product that it first appeared in. And then he pulled out his first edition Dungeons of the Slave Lords by Lawrence Schick, which is where they first where cave Fishers first appeared. And sure enough, Paul absolutely had that. Um, yep. Yep. And then I uh, right and then there. I also ha- I also found a great to me a great Errol Otis piece of art for it, uh, which we were debating a little bit before the show. So there's this is one that had a significant change between first and fifth edition. Not a lot of changes, but one really notable um change so in fifth edition what's the primary thing that the, that the cave fisher that we see on screen does keith
2: uh it fishes it is a very very <coughs> literal name uh you know when i when i first saw it i never read i i just you know flipping through the pages dead to dead cave fisher okay blah, blah blah you know flipping through the pages of the book and and cave fisher i don't know it kind of reminded me of silverfish like, which are neither silver nor fish, they're centipedes. Um, and so, like, that was the image I got in my head for, for some reason. And then I was writing the blog, got to it. I don't know if I wrote it for the blog or I think I wrote it for the blog or just for the book. Sometimes it's been a while, I forget. Um, I was uh, looking at the stat log, I'm like, oh, okay. It lives in caves and it fishes for prey. I mean, that is like a total <laughs> literal description of what it is and what it does. Like, all right, all right, don't need to don't need to get fancy here. But yeah, it's got a it's got a sticky filament like a spider web, and it yep. it it like extends it out, and something touches it and it yanks it back.
1: Now, obviously, the, the best way to use your cave fisher is how for the
2: DM. So, um, the, uh, the, the set phrase I always talk about in relation to ambush predators is that they don't go after the toughest animal in the herd. They go after the young, the old, the weak, the isolated, the oblivious. And, um, The thing about the cave fissure is, on the one hand, it can't really target who goes across its filament. Uh, But what it does is, when something that it can reel in does go across its filament, it can yank it in, and it does the isolating. So um, it doesn't have to pick the one... wandered off from the group, it takes its prey away from the group that its prey was part of uh, a moment ago. Now, if um, you know, it can only haul in up to 200 pounds. It has a weight limit. And um, you know, many medium-sized humanoids, even if they themselves don't weigh 200 pounds, they plus their gear way more. And so if they tried to pull that in, the prey would just fall off the filament. And so, um, suppose multiple creatures get stuck to the filament before it yanks the filament back. I say, well, you know what? The cavefisher fisher doesn't choose who it gets. Physics chooses the lightest one sticks and all the others fall off. Um, uh, and it doesn't really have the intelligence or the wisdom to uh to think about who it's targeting uh it just it it lets it lets physics and happenstance make the choice for it
1: it's uh the um well super well put the the errol otis art i think makes a, a really good impression of what you're saying about the k is isolating uh, one of its targets is in that picture, the k <laughs> has got one thing it's pulling up to its horrible mandibles and the rest of the party is at this point very far away. On the <laughs> other side of an apparently uncrossable
2: cavern Maybe they were isolated and oblivious to begin with. Right, maybe so. Mm-hmm.
1: Now the, here's the thing, here's the tiny, teeny tiny little change from first edition. If I look in that um, uh, Dungeons of the Slave Lords adventure, where the k originally appeared, the weight limit wasn't 200 pounds. It was 400 pounds.
2: How that's much a huge more, difference in flight, right? Eight? Right. Because of gear, How just much, because of gear. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. How much more dangerous would it be if the limit was still 400 pounds in, in, in fifth edition?
2: Significantly more dangerous because at that point you could get just about everyone except fighter and plate mail or mm-hmm. the pat, you know, whoever, whoever your party tank is, who's wearing plate mail or, um, uh, you know, carrying their house on their back like a snail. Um, (laughs) You could, you could get, you could get probably 80% of PCs that way. Whereas this way you're down to about maybe 40%. Do you
0: you think that change was made specifically as a, as a balancing uh, factor? Do you think somebody somebody came in know. and was like, is this, this is too much? That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. I, I mean it, um, it legitimately
2: could be based on the size of the creature, because Cave Fisher's not that big. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. Um I wanna gotcha. recommend um so uh oh there's in fact there's the there's the source of that of that image right there in the beginning of right, the I cover
1: four. of the inside um, book, right? Yeah.
0: Uh, for anyone looking for a good encounter design with the features of Kate Fisher, obviously there's A4, but also I would highly recommend uh, the 2010 uh, Osric module called uh, Stone Sky Delve. Uh, if you've never seen this, uh, it was a run at Gen Con 2010 as a convention game. And the most fascinating thing, spoilers spoilers for anyone who's uh, not, not read this module, is that it includes uh, two versions of the underground map that is both a top-down view and a side view, because yes. it highly, highly takes advantage of three dimensional terrain. And I think that's yeah. really interesting for the cave fisher is, is coming up with these situations like what we see are in the Arrow Lotus art, where the, the environment is also playing a factor. That, the, that typically, uh, the, the best time really to hit the players, I think, with the cave fisher is when they're already trying to traverse something difficult, right? They're already dealing with a chasm or ledges or some kind of vertical movement through, through an underground system, and and now one of them got pulled away into some remote location. Yeah.
2: And they have spider climb, so they can hang upside down on the ceiling. And uh, yep. the best place for them is really on a ceiling that is about 60 feet up, uh, which is the, the maximum range of their filament. And then they can yank someone off the ground, and now you've got that terrible roper conundrum, which is, do I escape and fall... Or, or what? What's the other alternative? Sit here and get munched. <laughs> you know, I mean, there yeah, is it's yeah. it's uh, it's a Scylla and Charybdis choice. Um, the um, the uh, I, I I talk about cavefishers as being primarily solitary hunters, uh, but you might have a place where because of traffic, underground, or whatever, that the hunting is really good. And uh, it might be so good that it attracts several cave fishers. And you can get these hilarious situations where like, one of the cave fishers yanks your party's halfling up into the air, and then one of the other cave fishers, instead of trying to hunt the other creatures on the ground, tries to take the halfling away from the first one, and the halfling is just getting yanked around in <laughs> the air by all these multiple cavefishers, fishers while, while their allies down on the ground try to figure out what to do about it. Yeah. That's
1: great. <laughs> I like that a lot. I like that idea a lot, actually. <laughs> that's great. I also like the, your point about uh, the fact that if a cavefisher fisher pulls you up and you get away from it, The the damage from the fall is actually much worse than the cave fisher itself.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Although if you if you kill the cave fisher, you still got the problem (laughs) of how to get down. You know, right? It it really (laughs) is super no win right now one thing okay so
1: there's this one thing in fifth edition that's one other thing in fifth edition that uh that's a little odd is it has apparently it has this flammable blood ability that if you get it down to God, half, that is so, all the stupid.
2: Things, that is so right, stupid
1: right 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 <laughs> i think i know now i think i know where that comes from is in in the first edition rules they've got this thing that says you can get away from the sticky filament if you apply alcohol and, and then it says, and the creature's blood is very alcoholic. So I think that they were trying to give like an, I think Schick was trying to give an out of like, okay, you've been stuck on it. You've been drawn in, you killed it. How do you get off it? If you didn't bring any wine, well, the blood from the creature will actually release you. I think that was the original intent, but fifth edition turned it into this, like, it'll blow up better. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it'll blow up <laughs> Flammable blood, which is, it's just, I, sometimes I can't eat. <laughs> well,
1: they're trying. They don't hit everything on the, they don't get the A plus every single time, but they're trying. They do, they do pretty well. <laughs> now let's talk about, so, so Keith, you mentioned something right before the show started that I thought was interesting. And obviously here at Wandering DMs, we're going to have our last episode of the season uh, next week. Uh, Paul is tomorrow night on uh, 10 Dead Rats is going to wrap up that campaign. He's going to have the last session of his campaign that's been going on for about two years. And on the issue of, of how do you bring things to a reasonable end, you just told us that you had a rise of Tiamat campaign
2: that was yeah. running for about
1: six years. that so You just ended in June. How did you do
2: that? Yeah. So just to give a little bit of background, it began as a, uh, so it, it, for anyone out there who has the monsters know what they're doing in the introduction to the book, I talk about my wife asking me to run a D&D campaign for her and her coworkers. So this is that campaign. Uh, it began with Lost Mine of Phandelver. And then when they graduated out of that at, at level four, we went straight into uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen, and Rise of Tiamat. And in the meantime, there were some uh, side quests that I had written for the the players to achieve personal goals, and um, we went on hiatus for a year when both my wife and another of our players both had children. And um, so we, we came back and finished the campaign in June of this year uh, with the big fight against at and then of course you got to have a denamo because you don't want it to just end like a neil stevenson novel. No offense, I love neil stevenson. Ouch. <laughs> Dude doesn't end books, he stops. Ouch. Um, <laughs> anyway, um so after everyone has had a chance to recover from the fight and head back home to Waterdeep. Um I just gave them i decided that i was going to end it the way they ended oceans 11 where they're all gathered around <laughs> who le- and who leaves first and where do they go and i just mm. one by one i, I let <laughs> yep, people yep, when do you leave and where do you, who leaves first and where do you go and then who leaves yep. next and where do you go um and and i thought I, I felt like that worked really, really well, and I really liked doing it that way. And uh, then we also did a, you know, where are you, what are you doing a year later? Nice.
1: Nice. You know, I just started yep. re-watching Ocean's Eleven last night, as a matter of fact. It's so funny you bring that up. I mean, this is very Do you know, do you know how, how they, uh,
2: I don't know if you read the director's commentary on that, uh, or, or read the trivia, but the director... Of that, uh, what well, was Soderbergh? Right, it was Steven Soderbergh who directed that. Yeah, Soderbergh told them, uh, "Okay, you're all gathered around the fountain at the, I think it's the Bellagio." Yep, yep, he yep. says, "He says, just stand here, watch the fountain, and leave when you feel like it's the right moment for your character to leave." Nice. And that's what they did. They, they, that whole scene was improvised, wow. including. Carl Reiner just staying there to the bitter end and, and never leaving.
1: Fascinating. They
2: wow. all they all just left when they felt like it was right to leave.
1: Mm-hmm. It feels mm-hmm. totally very improvised. natural. It feels very yeah. very natural, and I can totally it, does. that. that uh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah.
0: I mean, they, they, this harkens back to our previous discussion, right, about uh, 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 player player control. Not we I mean, call it control. What do we call it? I can't remember.
1: Player uh, narrative. But...
0: Control, yeah. right? Yeah, sure, sure. Something <laughs> like that. It was a so one week. Autonomy, player autonomy, <laughs> was, player... Right, it was
2: um, one yeah, week ago. Yeah, yeah. Agency, that's the word you're looking for. Agency, player agency. <laughs> Thank you. It's, um, you know, it's very
0: similar, honestly, to the, the technique I've used in many campaigns um, and that's and probably you will see tomorrow night of, of basically turning, turning it over to the players and saying, all right, we're at the end, tell me about what happens to your player. Um, I've also seen a technique where you increment the amount of time person by person you say you, you turn to the first person and say what you know what happens to your character the next day and then the next person what happens to your character a week later and where are you a year later and etc and you just keep advancing the clock until everybody's got a chance to go and and the last person wraps it up um I love i'll tell that. you one thing i, though, I love the great. way the fountain technique worked so well yeah, that's i am just going to
2: use that every time this is good. <laughs>
0: Maybe I'll, I'll see, you'll see how things turn out tomorrow night. Maybe I'll just steal that. Um yeah. that I is, that stole it. You know, my, <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> my my question to you. Uh, from a movie but
1: stealing stuff. Yeah. So it seems. Yeah. 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 yeah there, there you
0: go. There you go. Great. Right. And, and if it's stealing on planned, I, can, I can I can blame Keith, right? So that's, <laughs> that's helpful. Um, but uh, sorry, I have another question for you, Keith. Which was uh, when you started the—I guess when you started the—the the Dragon Queen, or, or like at what point, as you were introducing content, did you say, did you think to yourself, "Well, when we get to the end of this, end of this content, the campaign will be over and we'll just be done"?
2: Oh, I always, I always knew it was going to end at the end of Rise of Tiamat. Um, okay, and I'll be honest by by the end of it. Um, I was starting to feel really ready for it to be done. And, uh, and, and especially when I hit um, chapter eight of Rise of Tiamat, which I find, to, this is the, uh, the one involving the Thayans. I found that chapter to be extremely problematic, and I just skipped it entirely. I, I said, I'm not, I'm not running this. In not only, not only. I mean, I I I try to be very, very positive about things, but this chapter really made me angry um, because not only. Uh, well, number one, it, it 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 pushed my biggest button, which is torture. I mm. do. I my opinion, my personal opinion is there is no place for torture in tabletop role-playing. Maybe there are people who think there are, are situations in which you can make it work somehow, make it okay. Not in my game, ever. As That is something I will never, ever touch. But the other thing was just a stupid, practical, pragmatic epistemology thing which is here you have someone who's interrogating your characters, interrogating your PCs, but you don't know what she already knows. How are you supposed to run an interrogation scene if you don't know what the person interrogating the PCs mm-hmm. already knows and is still trying to find out? It makes mm-hmm. no sense. You know, I th- There is there is something that is at the root of all of my dungeon mastering, all of the writing I've done, which is that every creature on your campaign stage, every monster, every NPC has its own life, its own purposes. And when you're not looking, it's off doing its own things and it's living its life. It's not there just to show up when you need it to be. You know, it's like the, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead in theory. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern still have things to do even when they're not on stage. And, um, and so I am always very highly concerned about what every person or creature knows. Because that is what animates their behavior. It's what drives their choices. And if you have this important scene... This 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 set piece scene in which you're being interrogated by this powerful wizard, but you're not told what she is trying to accomplish through this interrogation, it's a stupid waste of time. And then just on top of that, to um to uh to to, to add in torture just as an atmospheric mm-hmm. element. I was so angered and offended by by that chapter that I refused to even try to adapt it for the campaign. I just said, this is gone. This is out. I'm not wasting my time trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear here. Yeah. That's, that's, I,
0: mean, that's, I think that's, that's super
2: correct. important that, that, you know, mm-hmm.
0: kind of, part of the DM's role, right, is especially if you're running pre-written content is that you are the editor, right? And so you, you got to know your taste, you got to mm-hmm. know your table's tastes and you got to tailor it. I mean, are you uh, anyone who's watching 10 Dead Rats and following along with the Enemy Within campaign, which is what we're running, uh will know that I cut out the entire fourth book. I just didn't run it because uh I don't think I was quite as uh, offended as Keith is here with uh
2: with the <laughs> the piece of content, but I was like, it, I didn't think it added. it. Wasn't like, and I'll tell you, there's very, very little that, that, that gets un, gets under my skin the way that that particular chapter did. I don't think I've, I don't think I personally have, I know other people have run into things that really set them off. I have never run into anything anywhere in 5e, d that set me off the way this did.
1: I haven't read that adventure. I'm very surprised to hear that that's, that that's included in a, uh, in an official product. I'm
2: very surprised. I mean, it was one of the first official products they put out. Okay, um, I do know they they outsourced the writing of it, and okay. um, you know, and there are a few things that that there are a few real eyebrow razors that crept into Five E that even as uh, even as an old man playing this game, remembering how things were years ago. <laughs> In the old days, um, you know, there there are certain descriptions, like the the descriptions of the half orc in the player's handbook and the descriptions of orcs in the monster manual, which are uh, they just they just made me go, how did this get through editing? How did how did nobody stop and say? This is nothing but a bunch of racist stereotypes dumped together in a soup pot. Isn't there anything we can do with this material that might be less obviously bad? Um, hmm. I just, I, I, it, it boggles my mind that that made it through editing. And, and you know, they have the Wizards has. Um, Made some serious efforts, not enough for some, too much for others um, to to try to address some of the uh, problematic uh, things in in D and d. and And I'm glad they have at least taken seriously um, the way that orcs have been depicted in the past because I have thought for thirty years that they needed something better than what they got. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, I also a little, little controversial, a little spicy here. Um, I also think that they have, um, occasionally misdiagnosed a problem and, and, um, and adopted solutions that deal with the issue superficially, but don't solve the underlying issue. Mm -hmm. Um, Without, I, I don't want to get. I don't want to get into too many specifics here and turn this whole conversation into a lightning rod. Um, but uh, it wouldn't be the first time we've accidentally done cases, that. I'll say that. In some cases, yeah. In some cases, there are there are there are real problems that exist, but the solutions yeah. seem to solve the problems, but don't really. And. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. But I also I, we, say they, they, to me, they are clearly trying, and yeah. they're aware that that mistakes have been made, um, and and are trying to do, do something about them. Um, I but, for you know, one they, appreciate but then you being they about that. Yeah, yeah. And they thank you, thank right? You. But they they released that whole two volume set of uh, Port of the Dragon Queen Rise of Tiamat. They they republished it. As one adventure, and I haven't looked at the the republished set, but I don't know if they did anything with that uh, with that chapter. I know they re-released Curse of Strahd and tried to purge the descriptions of the Vistani of offensive anti-Roma yeah. stereotypes, yeah. Um, but I don't know whether they did anything with Rise of Tiamat or not
0: we are we are in the, the, the last minute here of the show uh, I just want to I just want to roll us back to the the uh, initiating topic here which was was ending ending your campaign um, so I'm just kind of curious because I I, I really uh, it's very fascinating to me Keith to hear about how you architected the end of your campaign and I'm curious if that's a common uh, practice for you across campaigns or I feel like a lot of campaigns end kind of just by running out of steam Right, I've, I've experienced that you know myself. What? This a lot is of the first Tremendous opportunity wow. I've
2: ever had to end a campaign.
0: Oh no, really. Like this is the okay. first.
2: I'm- this is the first time I've ever gotten to play a story all the way huh. to the end. It's great. What you- it's great. <laughs> yeah. and, <you> know, <laughs> I, I, and I love. And and one of the one of the best things about it, honestly, is this is every. I think this is every D and D player's dream is to see a good artist illustrate their character. Um, or illustrate their party like every mm-hmm. every D player wants this and yeah. um i was uh as a final gift to my players at the end of this campaign i was able to hire aviv or to do a uh a big group character portrait oh, Nice and wow. um can i can i show it off because i love yeah, please this so so much let me see if I can make the uh, screen sharing work here. Um, we
0: pushing the technology. Hopefully, this works. Is that a thing in VMix? <laughs> that is a thing in VMix now. There it, is. Oh, it nice. is. There it is. Oh hi! Very nice.
1: That's great.
2: Magnificent. Yeah. Magnificent. That's the best. Aviv is amazing. Awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. Fantastic.
0: Wow. All right, we are we are definitely thank running for the pod now. And yeah, thank you so thank you so much, Keith. Uh, I guess any, any final thoughts from anyone? Any anyone, uh, last, last thoughts on, on some of the monsters we've covered or, or ending campaigns?
1: I'll just make a pitch for Keith's book. You know, I, I appreciate what you do so much, Keith, particularly someone, right, who plays a lot of D&D, but not quite so much 5th edition, frankly. You, you, you really give me a, a, an enormous head start at uh, knowing how to run monsters, specifically in 5th edition, if I don't know it already. And your blog and your books are, are fantastic. They're going to be a major element of my my prep uh, for, for future uh, tournament-type stuff. And people should go get more. 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 <laughs> right uh, I think that's more Monsters Know What They're Doing. And you can see, you can pre-order it now at your favorite bookstore or online bookstore. And you can go to uh, Keith's uh, site at themonstersknow.com and you'll see more links to everything. Indeed. Uh, you can uh, take a look in
0: the description text of the video here if you want. I'm sure there will be links directly to Keith's blog, as well as uh, more that reiteration of that, that information about where to find the, the new book. Um,
2: uh, and now that and, I'm finally, uh, finally, finally done writing my fourth book, or at least done enough to, to tell my editor that I'm done, um, I can get back to updating the blog again which is something my readers can look forward to great in the coming year. Uh, Yeah, I meant to have this book done in February. So I'm sorry to every blog reader who has been waiting an entire year for me to update the content. Believe me, it's been hurting me too, but there will be more. The monsters know what they're doing blog content in 2022. Promise. Great.
0: We are Uh, all looking forward to it. We, We are indeed. Viewers, any any comments on the Lucrata or the Cave Fisher or Darkness uh, or ending your campaign? uh, Please leave us some comments in the video here. Uh, Tell us what we forgot, what we missed, and uh, I'm sure we'll be very excited to see that. And possibly that will instigate a new,
1: even more detailed conversation down the road. Yeah, definitely. And if you're new to the Wandering DM show, remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us, the Wandering DMs on YouTube, and Twitch, and Twitter, and Facebook, and also GitHub if you're a coder. And we do have the handle WanderingDMs on all of those sites. So uh, look for us there, and you'll get updates on future guests like Keith.
0: If you prefer to listen to the show in audio-only podcast format, you can get those podcasts at our website at WanderingDMs.com. You can also find us on various podcast carriers, such as Google Podcasts, uh, iTunes, Spotify. If you're listening to this show right now on one of those sites, please take a moment to rate and review us there. That helps other users of that site find our show, and we really appreciate it.
1: We really do. As always, huge thanks to our patrons who support the show, and if you would like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash DMs and you'll see a couple different tier options. We have discounts on merch, access to our private Discord server, monthly behind-the-scenes videos, polls, and surveys, and after-party chat that we do every Sunday right after a show. We will there be there in about 5 to 10 minutes on our Discord server to continue the conversation on the live chat there. Uh, as, as noted, Paul is going to be on with 10 Dead Rats tomorrow night for the conclusion to the 10 Dead Rats campaign cycle. So we're very much looking forward to that um and then i we uh, isabel and i are trying to do one last uh book of war in our wargaming series for the year uh that might be uh this coming saturday we really hope to get that get one more in at least um and but don't forget of course uh big thanks to keith look for more monsters know what they're doing and we will all look forward to that uh with great anticipation keith thank you so much for joining
2: us today thank you again for inviting me it's a lot of fun Fantastic.
1: Of course, we are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again next week for another thought provoking discussion. See you then.